Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 31. Firmly in the 30s. 31. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, coming to you live from the Holzman Recording Studios in Pinole, California. Karen Holzman is my engineer. And let's thank our sponsors, the IJA and Braindrizzles.com for bringing us Drop Everything number 31 with today's guest, Josh Horton. That's right, one of the most exciting and successful of the modern professional jugglers, Josh Horton. But first, the plugs, the IJA, International Jugglers Association, come to the big festival this year, this July, in El Paso, Texas. You can see me, Dan Holzman, the machine, MC, the welcome show, and so much more. Emil Dahl, Pete Irish, oh, it's going to be great. Come out to El Paso, Texas, join me at the IJA Summer Festival. Also, Braindrizzles.com. That's my personal coaching and career guidance website. Also, a shout out to AirTrafficToys.com. For all your skill toy needs, go to AirTrafficToys.com. Okay, enough preamble. Let's get on to this great chat with Josh Horton. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, a fantastic juggler. Someone who I've had my eye on is probably one of the most successful of the modern jugglers using his intelligence, his social media skills, his entrepreneurial abilities to really carve out a very successful juggling career. Welcome to the podcast, Josh Horton. How you doing, Josh? What's up, Dan? Doing well. Good. And now you're in uh, in Dallas now? Are you centrally located so you'll have more access to different types of jobs? Um, no. no. Dallas Dallas was chosen for us. My wife, my wife is doing Teach for America, mm-hmm. and we were assigned to Dallas. But... It has been awesome because of that reason. So that, that's, my, that's my favorite part is flights have been a lot easier from Dallas and L.A. Because I always thought that if I had to move somewhere purely to become a professional juggler, I would choose like Chicago or Dallas, but probably Dallas because it's so centrally located. Yeah. So I thought once again, I, I said, well, if Josh Horton's going to move anywhere to be a professional juggler, he'd move to Dallas. Yeah. No, that was just that was that was luck of the draw. <laughs> Still, that did turn out quite well. Yeah. And yeah. what did you say your wife did? She's a sixth grade teacher. Oh, cool. And you were recently married. Or you're, you're still a newlywed. Yeah, it's been a year and a half or so. Nice, nice. Does that fit well together, the, the teacher-juggler combination? We'll see. We're about to have our last, last summer. She was in training all summer, but we're about to have her first summer off. And I don't have a, this is my first summer without a real job. Mm-hmm. So we're, it'll be interesting to have our a, a summer off together. So that'll be good. And is she going to want to travel with you? Is she someone who enjoys yeah. that, that lifestyle? Yeah. She, depending on the, the show and whether we're flying or driving or how much I'm getting paid, uh, she'll come with me. And, and depending on the city, of course. She doesn't really care to go to uh, some of the smaller cities or whatnot. But yeah, she, she comes with me every once in a while when she can. Cool. And then, so you live in Dallas now, but where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was I was actually born in Texas, but I we moved to Illinois when I was a baby, and so I I was in Illinois, normal Illinois, from um, ages one through fourteen, and that's kind of where I learned to juggle. So, um, what do you mean normal? Like like the like normal Illinois interests would be what basketball, football. No, the 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 name of the town was Normal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I got you. All right. No, normal Illinois. Look it up. I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if you were qualifying it as a very normal town. Well, that too, but it's actually called Normal. I see. 
So then, so you were 14 and were you interested in, in the, the theater or in sports up to that point? Definitely sports. Uh, like my, my elementary school had a circus program. So that's where I learned how to juggle. Mm. Uh, Illinois State University has the Gamify Circus. Right. One, one of the two collegiate circuses in the country. And my elementary school was like connected with the university. And so the college kids came over and taught us circus skills. So we were the junior Gamify Circus. So I learned to juggle in, in second grade and the program was, was through eighth grade. Kind of after I was too old for the program, I stopped juggling for a while and, and was more focused on sports because basketball was a lot cooler than juggling. And so that was my thing for a little bit until, until I moved uh, to California after my freshman year of high school. That's a pretty good early start. Were you also aware of jugglers on television or jugglers uh, professionally? I, I mean, I had no idea. Like, I, I honestly thought I was one of the best in the world uh, because I could do three torches. So I, I hadn't even tried. I hadn't really tried four walls. <laughs> and I had, I had never, I didn't know five was, was possible. So, no, I, I, did, I did very little research then. <laughs> right. And so and the idea of being like a professional juggler never entered the equation. No. I mean, I think maybe the idea of doing a circus, but I don't, I don't think at that point I, I wanted to do that. And then, so what were your parents doing that they were able to move to California? Was that like for a job switch? Yeah, it was for my mom's job. She was uh, the director of counseling at a university in Illinois, Wesleyan University. And then she moved to be the, the director of counseling at Pepperdine University in Malibu. So mm. I, moved, I moved from normal to Malibu. It okay. was quite, quite the transition. So, so this year you're in high school, like you're like 13 or 14 years old. Is that... Yeah, yeah I, was, I was 14, 15. I mean, I was, I was after my freshman year of high school, so I was a sophomore when I moved. So, yeah, 15-ish, 14-ish, 14-ish. Right, so you moved to a new school. You have these awesome juggling skills, which I'm sure... Not really. I, mean, I, hadn't, I hadn't really juggled in a couple of years, so I, I didn't think I had that awesome of skills. Because you had let them go because you thought that, okay, you sort of aged out of the program. Yeah. And so what got, back, what got you back into juggling then? Yeah, so at... At my school, it was my first year there, and I thought about doing the talent show, and like I told a couple of my friends that I like, could juggle, and they, they kind of talked me into it. And so like my act, my talent show act was literally juggling three clubs. I did like two or three tricks, and then I think I juggled three machetes, and then maybe three torches too, I think. Mm -hmm. So like, like very, you know, my, my skill was very basic. Uh, but I won, I won the talent show for the high school and someone in the audience sent me the Chris Bliss video, found my email and sent me the Chris Bliss video. And then from that, I found the Chris Bliss diss okay. and Jason Garfield, the World Juggling Federation found out that Vova, Vova lived like 15 minutes from me. There, there was some time in there where I started like really going at it and practicing because this is this is right when YouTube was uh, kind of starting to pick up speed uh, and taught myself five balls, four clubs. And then once I kind of had, had done that, I, I reached out to Vova and asked him for uh, lessons. And so then I started training with Vova. Hmm. And so when you saw the Chris Bliss video, sort of, which is the famous video of him juggling to the Beatles music, yeah, were you sort of taken aback? Like, oh, is this good that he's... Juggling like this, or were you already kind of experienced sort of the WGF style? Not at all. I enjoyed that video, but then when I saw Jason's five ball version, I was like, I like that a lot more. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we, I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to talk a little bit more about 
WGF style stuff, but as as a kid who grew up playing sports, like I've always liked the athletic side of things, and so I just I knew I think as as an athlete, I definitely appreciated the the Jason version more than the the Chris version. And did you uh, then sort of look up about juggling and juggling history? Did you have any interest in sort of the the era of like the Francis Bruns or the Nino Fradianis and Rudy Cardenas's? Sort of, were you any interested in sort of the less modern styles of juggling? I, I didn't really look into any of like kind of the history of juggling until kind of more more recent years. Once I kind of had uh, been a more mature juggler, but ba- back then I was when I when I was first learning, I, I only cared about people I could find YouTube videos of. So there must have been quite a thrill to train with Vova though, and uh, so he would come. Did you go to a studio or a house? I went to the Bacalor house, the the big, uh-huh. the big, uh, big McMansion mansion from the videos. Yeah, exactly. And you went into their their big foyer with the tile floor that's been chipped away by uh-huh. Vova's many hours of practicing. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they have a, a huge. What do you say that ceiling is? Like maybe thirty foot. Oh, and way more than that. Way more than that. Yeah. I think maybe fifty or sixty. Well, because my ceiling here is only about 30 or 40, so in compared to the, the Bacalors. Of course, Barry Bacalor was a very big uh, juggling proponent from my era. Like, I started seeing Barry when I was probably 16 or 17, and I would come up here to the Bay Area. He lived in San Jose, and he had the one of the few video collections. You know, before this whole, this newfangled mm. internet stuff, we used to watch videos, VHS tapes, before you, you modern kids with your... Uh, gray box and newfangled YouTubes and things like that. So Barry Bacalor was a pretty important figure and he got pretty involved with uh, Volva and Olga's lives. So what was it, what was trending with Volva like? Was that something you took pretty seriously and that he took seriously and what kind of a, was it a weekly thing? Yeah. I, I can't remember if I was going once a week or twice a week, but there was, we went out for several months and I, as you can imagine, I was getting very good very quickly. And part mm-hmm. of that, part of that was because, of his instruction and p- part of it was because I was somewhat intimidated by him and wanted to make sure I was uh, practicing to his expectations and whatnot. But also I was going from n- never practicing to practicing two, three hours a day. And so I, I got very good very quickly in, in that uh, segment of, of, of a few months. I don't know exactly how long it was. And we, we were going steady until that's, that's the time where Vova got like, kicked out of the country. His, his visa or whatever expired, and that's when he was back in Russia. And when that was happening, I actually trained with Olga for a while, and Ol- Olga kind of picked up uh, where Bova left off and uh, was training with Olga. And were you always interested in sort of the balls, rings, and clubs approach? Was that yeah. your main focus? Yeah. At that, that, at that point, I was, uh, uh, you know, my, my biggest inspiration was watching some of those, the, the early WGF competitions, and so that's kind of where I was headed with it. I didn't have any really aspirations to be a professional juggler at that point. I just wanted to compete. Uh, you know, I, I was I was the athlete and I wanted to uh, do the you know, the sports style competition and so that, that's kind of all I all I focused on was definitely the balls, rings and clubs. And so what was your your first convention? Did you go to a convention before you you competed or is the uh, WGF your first sort of group juggling experience? I I think my very first thing was um, Mondo Fest. I went to Mondo um, when I was in high school, and I, I can't remember if I, it was either that or I also went to a the, one of the WGF training camps, which was like a 
you know, it was one one of the yeah, times winter. where yeah, it was like a winter thing, and I think maybe there was like a they skipped a a season, whatever, in between conventions or something, and they they had a a very small. Um, you know, compared to their the other conventions, sure. and Much more it was, focus group, right? And so that that was really cool. But that was my my first uh, WGF event, and I can't remember if that was before or after I went to Mondo. Uh, but those were both pretty, definitely my two first events, I believe. And was your practice pretty regimented? I mean, would you sort of always sort of do it the same way? Were you sort of working in the what you'd call like this pyramid technique of trying to increase your number of throws? So, what was sort of your practice style then? Yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty serious. Especially my, I know my junior and senior year of high school, um, I worked a like an after school job, and it was I think it was like exactly three hours. You know, um, at, like I got, I got out of school kind of early, in my, especially my senior year, and I had three hours between school getting out and when I started my job, and I would use those three hours uh, very effectively. And I, I know for a while I was doing an hour of balls, hours club, hour of rings. Um, and it was it was pretty structured. Um, and like any particular order you like approach those three, or is it kind of something you mix nah, it up? I would switch it up uh, yeah. depending on how I was feeling that day. Yeah. And and what about the rings? I always found that the rings on my hands were so tough. How do you, how do you build up to do an hour a day on the rings? Yeah. Well, you just have to not be a pansy. <laughs> is that is that my thing? That my my <laughs> hands were too soft and smooth. Too... Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, just just recently, I because I don't do rings in my halftime show anymore and so i hadn't i haven't been practicing this last year too much until until very recently mm -hmm. and getting back into practice my hands were were bleeding from it so it's definitely no joke um but back then i was doing it so much i had i had very leathery hands did you take them out because they didn't fit into the theme or you were having problems with the air conditioning why did you i, I really was having trouble with the air conditioning um some of those stadiums just have big vents all pointing to the middle, and so then if you're, you're when they're middle of the stadium and you throw one up, it's just like getting hit by air mm. ducts from all over the place. And what were you doing? Like you were doing like a seven rings or something? Was your? Uh, I was just six, but the, they're the big ones. Right, right. Looks like seven. Yeah. So and then are you, are you practicing them to bring this back, or why are you bringing a, this painful activity back into your life? <laughs> well, I'm just practicing in general for the first time in a, in a while. Um, I think you know one one of the things I didn't work into a structured practice was warming up and stretching mm -hmm. um, properly, and so after um, several years, I, I did I did about three hours a day, uh, sometimes four hours a day uh, through most of my college um, career as well, and I started having really bad back and shoulder problems, uh, and to the point where I had to stop practicing. Um, and so I was, you know, I've, I've obviously, obviously been doing a lot of performing since then, um, but I was not like going to the gym, not even like once a week. Like I, I, I was just not, I was just not practicing. I, I would warm up before a show, and that was kind of my right. only practice I was doing. And lately, I've been going to physical therapy, and also for the first time, like I'd, I'd seen a chiropractor, uh, but I found like a sports. Um, physical therapist that's like only for um athletes like I'm, I'm working out next to like nfl players and stuff on some days um but it is uh been making a huge difference and i'm finally able to go to the gym and practice without uh having crazy amounts of pain so 
that's been been great. And so I, I'm like back to I do I don't I'm trying not to overdo it, but I'm I've been doing about one hour a day for the last like three or four weeks, and I, I've, I'm amazed at how much better I've gotten. <laughs> yeah, it's also funny the difference between like this my style of juggling and how I think about juggling. You know, versus people who like when I was younger, 18, 19, I practiced four hours a day. I would do two hours in the morning and two hours in the evenings. But that didn't last very long. And, and as soon as I got into the comedy juggling, you know, my style of juggling as far as the the difficulty of the physical technique is, is quite low. You know, it's all sort of more based on the creative creativity or the comic approach. But when I think of guys like Agato or like yourself or people who a lot of what they're selling is... Yeah, a, lot, of, a lot of people group me and Gatto into the same... Uh, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. When I think of Gatto, I usually get with Gatto <laughs> Horton. Yeah. That's purely because alphabetically his name comes first. Yeah. is the reason I, I group them in that order. It, but you think about guys who are putting in this sort of really extreme practice on like the higher numbers, the five clubs, the seven clubs, the seven rings, and the toll it does take on your body. Yeah. Like for myself, I'm almost 55. Makes you, makes you want to start a construction business. Yeah, because that's a lot easier on, yeah. on your body. But I, I can imagine the, the, the amount of stress that he put on his body, Gatto. And I don't know for sure, but I imagine one of the big reasons he, he retired was because uh, of the physical pain he might have been under. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, were, there was a time when I, when I was really bad, I couldn't touch my elbows in front of me and I couldn't touch my hands behind me. That's kind of how bad my flexibility in my arms was. And I, I think I remember hearing something similar about Anthony, that he just had, had pretty awful kind of range of motion from just all the years of repetitive motion. So if you had to do it over again, would you then more incorporate more of a stretching or a pre-juggling routine into your practice? Yeah, I think I would have done a lot more stretching and um, proper warm-ups. And I, I would obviously, like, I wouldn't just go straight to five club 360s or anything, but I, I would do a warm-up, but I, I think I would take my warm-ups more seriously and bring out a, a rubber band or any of those things to help you kind of get loose before I start to train. And I also don't think I, I, I just wouldn't train as much as I did. Like, I feel like at some point, you know, after that third hour, it's like, all right, <laughs> you're, what, what's the point? Like, it would, be, it would be to my advantage to stop instead of keep going, I think. Right, right. Was, but these things you didn't learn from Vova, Vova was more of just like a, Let's just go out and practice, kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he, he was pretty serious about it, and would just kind of go hard at stuff until it starts to start to stuck. But was he more of like the technique of how to hold your body? I mean, what were some of the things you learned as far as structurally? Were there things about the tossing or catching that you remember as being instrumental in sort of creating a solid foundation? Yeah, I mean, the the big thing, like, I don't know if what what he would what it would exactly be teaching as, as this, I don't know if this is the right answer, but like I just, we, we were very careful before I started moving forward and things. And so we did a lot of like working on the four ball version of a move before I'm trying it with mm. five or working on the exercises leading up to something before trying it. And so like a lot of times, like we were, Vova and I were both very pleased because I would I would do we would try be working on a move like I, I an example was like my very first five club three up three sixty I got my first try mm. Olga, Olga was in the room and she was like what the heck <laughs> uh, but it's because you know we had we had trained three up three sixties very very sure. intensely and my five club pattern very intensely and worked on three up flashes when I tried the the thing like it just worked because we had done the proper build up to that and so. 
I think that's that's kind of the biggest thing was he didn't like moving on to something or trying something until I'd had the the skills necessary to attempt it. Well, I agree with that. I think people they drop too much like when they practice in that when they're they're building up to these harder tricks. Like if you see a guy break it down, like if you're going to learn back crosses and you take one club mm-hmm. and then you do what you're comfortable with and then you you keep building up, just keep pushing your comfort level a little bit. It seems so much more logical than someone getting five clubs, trashing those first few throws of five club back crosses, spending all this time picking them up, repeating the same mistake again, over and over again, until it just seems like, I guess there's some incremental improvement, but it just seems such a, like an illogical way. Like yeah. you, you wouldn't approach a, a song that way or, or any kind of sport that way. Yeah. Yeah, and then a lot of a lot of kids like can pull off crazy stuff, but then like when you watch it, it just kind of makes you cringe because it doesn't look it doesn't look nice. They've put in the hours, but they've just been pushing themselves, I think, a little too quickly to where their form and and everything is just kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, I was just at the uh, Dutch Juggling Festival, and this girl comes in, and she was very attractive, very Dutch looking girl. So I was going okay, I was, and she seemed very serious about her juggling. So I was very interested to see what, what she was going to do. And uh, so she comes out and she takes eight balls, right? This, I mean, I saw her a couple of times over the course of the festival. And she would take out eight balls and she would throw them up into the air. And I don't remember if she even caught the first ones very <laughs> often. And I never saw her do six. I never saw her do four. I never saw her warm up with like four with each hand. Every once in a while I'd look over and she would just have eight balls. And you just throw them up and then maybe get eight throws or 10 throws and then pick them all up. And, and it didn't last very long. Like your practice would be like 10 minutes or something. And then I thought, what a strange way to, to try to get better. Yeah. To sort of flail around like that. But I think, I think it's good that you have this very strong foundation. And also you had a very strong foundation sort of educationally because your degree seems like one of the few degrees that actually applies towards being a professional juggler. You have a degree yeah. in entrepreneurial studies. Yeah. What's cool it has a degree in entrepreneurial studies? It is a newish major that's starting to pop up, but a few of the big schools have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's in the business department, but it's you, everything. It's like, it's a business degree, but everything is focused on as if you're running your own business. So it's not your basic accounting or finance class. Like it's, it's personal finance, personal accounting. It's not, you know, I mean, you obviously take some normal marketing classes, but you also talk about just like, more of the guerrilla marketing stuff that's marketing stuff you can do like kind of on your own as one person uh, that without a huge budget and so it was it was good and I did switch my major once I decided I wanted to be a professional juggler what was your major before were you I came in social work Mm. my dad's a social worker and I also switched to communications I didn't really know what that meant I just kind of figured it was something a little bit more broad and then once I was was pretty set on being a juggler I switched to uh, entrepreneurial studies and I was very happy with it. So were you able to go into the class sort of with this idea of the professors look I want to be a professional juggler can I focus my studies towards how to do this successfully was that? Yeah yeah literally like my, my capstone class um, just had the senior graduating entrepreneurial studies major people, which was, there was only six of us. And so the whole that whole class was like developing our business plan for whatever business we were planning on doing after college. So it was very, very practical and very hands-on, which was, which was really good. 
And what were some of the other professions? I mean, you were probably the only juggler. Anything even similar to that? No. <laughs> no. Nothing. I mean, there were people wanting to start their own, like, one guy wanted to, like, do his own, like, boutique running shoe store, or uh, one girl was going to do her own, like, nannying service. So nothing, nothing right, right. quite like mine. That's so cool, though, that you're able to sort of actually take your schooling and basically say, this is what I want to do. Teach me how to do it. Yeah. And I tell people this all the time, like, people say like, well, what, what did you learn that you are like actually using in real life? And there, I don't think there's a ton, but I just help it. I think it helped me get in the mindset of it and being in the mindset of an entrepreneur was, I just think the biggest advantage of, of that major was it just, you know, I heard so many stories and read so many case studies and I just really started to think like an entrepreneur, I think. And, and so a lot of things that I'm doing was not anything that I learned in the classroom, but I've just been in that mindset since college. Right, sort of approaching your, your business, the juggling career, as an entrepreneurial opportunity to say, okay, the mindset is looking for opportunities, it's looking for ways to promote, not necessarily what it is exactly, but this idea that this is what I need to do is what I learned. Yeah. Now, let's go back a little bit. So, you're in high school, you're, you're, you're training. When do you go to your first WJF, and what's that experience like? I went... End of my junior year, so I had been juggling for almost two years. Ju I know I say juggling, I mean, you know, getting back into it sure. after, after the talent show. The talent yeah. show was like the beginning of, beginning of my sophomore year. And so then I started training for all my sophomore and then junior year. And it was, this was the WGF 4 in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. I had been to a couple of festivals, but this was my first, like, convention. And so, and got to see Thomas Dietz and Quovo was there competing as well and Doug Sayers and a few of the other guys I've been seeing on YouTube finally got to see them in person and I competed in the intermediate division and I believe I got third in balls and, and clubs. I think Doug Sayers won both of those uh, and then rings. I was the only person in rings so I got a, uh, a gold medal by default. <laughs> okay. And then, so, uh, you always seem to me as someone also very interested in combat. Was this something you, you were also yeah. playing at WGF? Yeah, that was the first time I think I played combat. And so that was, that was fun for me. You know, again, gets, it gets the, the athletic side of me super excited because this is not only is it uh, an athletic activity like juggling is, but it's also head-to-head -head attacking other people. Uh, right. So that, that part was very appealing to me and I had a lot of fun playing there. There, there was a guy there, Malta Peter. Uh, he's not a super well-known juggler, but he's an amazing juggler, but also a crazy combat player. And so he was the, the guy who was dominating during that convention. Uh, but also Anna and Selby were there who are, were very known for their combat skills as well. Now there's the combat, but also this fight night, that's sort of a, a gladiatorial style, like one-on-one. -on -one. Is that Something also something you take part in, like this fight night competitions. From what I understand, that's only in European conventions. Okay. So, I'm you know they have they have like a whole ranking system and whatnot, but I'm not I'm not even in their database because I've never participated in in it because I haven't been in any of those conventions. But it looks fun. Yeah. No, I saw one in in Israel, and it was uh, the first time I actually got kind of excited by by the combat because I remember one time I think there was a live stream on ESPN and I tried to watch some and they were having like a zombie combat or some kind of 
a more complex combat than I was used to seeing. Yeah. And I had, I had kind of trouble following the action. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of like, well, this is not really yeah. make it better for me. But when I saw the fight night, I thought, oh, this makes it better. It sort of boiled down to the most interesting part, which is when two guys face off. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, Major League Combat, we, we, they've still been, we were trying to figure out what, what is the best way to do it. And I think last SkillCon, we did just kind of skip zombie combat because it is very fun to play uh, as, a, as a competitor. It's my favorite of the game, of like the game formats mm. to play, but it is uh, hard to follow as a spectator. But some of those other ones, like we do at, for Major League Combat, we also do like the sumo combat, which is right. basically like Fight Night, where it's one on one, and if you win, you stay in. If you lose, you go to the back of your team's line, and then the next person comes up. So that's also really fun, and you have to stay in a small, in a pretty small circle. Well, I always thought that juggling to be popular, that they needed to have an umbrella like a sort of like an X Games kind of style. I always thought it would be more like the gravity arts and it would all be focused on things that were particularly prop-oriented, flair bartending, freestyle frisbee, that it really should be something where there's a bigger umbrella organization that juggling is a part of. In its way, Skillcom became that, but when I just sort of see these things that aren't really based on the creative use of props... I have trouble seeing how they all kind of fit together sometimes. Yeah. But that, that in itself is, is something that you're saying. It's like, yeah, it's certainly bringing a lot of attention. And there's a lot of new jugglers and jugglers who got aware of technical juggling through the WJF. Like, I have a question about this one trick, like these, these shoulder pads, uh-huh. like, like the club trick. Like, what was the evolution of that? Like, that was like a trick, like, like when I was coming up, you, you saw like nothing. I think maybe Mark Neiser had one move where he kind of caught it between his chin and his, in his neck. They would roll over the back of his neck back into the pattern. Mm-hmm. But you surely didn't see this really extensive repertoire of sort of rolling tricks. When was the first time you were aware of that trick and, and how did this whole style evolve? The, the, the reason for lots of styles and juggling and lots of other skills is because of YouTube. All of a sudden video sharing got so simple and so the first person i saw do something like that was toby walker in in a wgf video but then it got picked up by several others brett sheets was another wgf guy that i was watching for a long time who doesn't juggle uh i believe anymore and isaac rockefeller and then tons of others i i don't i don't know who was the the first person to to do it that would be a question for somebody more intelligent in that space than I am. But it definitely took off like, like many things did with, with the, the emergence of YouTube and the juggling community on YouTube. I like that one move you do where I think you, it goes around like twice around your neck. Yeah, it kind of goes around the front and then the back and then yeah. kind of the front again while I'm spinning. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's like a, a staff move. I think it's called like a, the Jesus roll right. for, for staff contact staff people and I had seen once some people like trying to do it with a club but I hadn't ever seen anyone do it from any sort of pattern back into any sort of pattern and so that is it is one of my favorite favorite yeah, yeah. that I do you have quite a few good variations on that club rolling so now you're being a little bit modest in that you actually won your Malibu high tool high school talent contest four <laughs> times you're a four-time winner <laughs> yeah 
So every year they're like, oh, oh no, Josh is competing again. Where you like basically, you own that talent contest. Yeah, well, there were there were three awards each night, or the, there was three like the talent show was three nights in a row. So it, mm. it wasn't you know I was only there for three years. So in in three years I won four times. <laughs> Still, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for each other that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean I was literally I think all oh no there was a magician once, but otherwise I was the only non musical act every time. So I think they just kind of had to give me an award based on that. Right. Right. Because the cat, they were they were like categories. It was like most best soloist, best or most creative, right. whatever. So I think I run like most creative like every time. <laughs> best juggling act. I'll give it to Josh again. Yeah, he's the only guy that competes every year in that one. So, but cool. So then you go on to college. You're you're getting this this degree in entrepreneurial studies. Then you get out of college and you actually got a, a job, like a, a marketing job, like a real job. Uh yeah. So what's after- that like? I know it's. What's the deal with that? So yeah, after college, I was pretty set on being a professional juggler, and I did that for about six months. And then a friend of the family was starting a social media agency, and at that point, you know, I was doing pretty well for a 22-year-old or whatever. But even when I was at my busiest, it was you know two two gigs a week or something, and so I had plenty of free time. And I started working part-time for them just to have like a little bit of stable income. I was doing like like 10 hours a week, just like deleting deleting comments off of Facebook pages for brands. Okay. <laughs> like really, really glamorous work, deleting spam and cuss words and whatnot. And that's when the, com- the company was at eight people. And then they just started to grow and grow and grow and kind of asked me for more and more work and, until it eventually turned into a full-time job. The cool thing about it was there was no office, and so it was all working remotely. It went from a 10-hour-a-week job to 20 to basically full-time, and then there was even more than 40 hours a week. Like it, was, it was a lot of work, but I was doing it all while I could travel or whatnot, so I was often working in airports and hotel rooms and green rooms of performances and whatnot, and so I did that for like a full, like over three years. had both the full-time job and was juggling and and juggle and performing at a pretty you know high caliber for a definitely wasn't like a, a thing I did like I was I, I was making a good amount of money and and performing at a lot of shows but it just kind of started to get to be too much and so last July I quit quit the job to just go full-time juggling now you were also doing a, a comedy juggling show as well I mean you have a a full like show you would do at colleges or cruises no, I've never done a cruise, and I haven't. Uh, I've done a couple like smaller college shows, mm-hmm. but I've got like a good like thirty minute call, uh, comedy show. Not much more than that. It's it's never really something I I focused on or or wanted to do. But I just kind of knew that as a professional juggler, like I should get some sort of show together. And I, I keep telling myself I want to expand it to an hour, but I just haven't haven't gotten it there yet. And it just hasn't been a focus. And you know, I, I kind of as I was getting ready to graduate, I, I kind of saw the potential in this in the halftime shows. I was making so much more money with a five minute act that I didn't want to have to worry about an hour. <laughs> well, it makes sense. I mean, I always use you as an example. I've brought you up a couple of times on this podcast of someone who I think is doing it right nowadays. I mean, every sort of era has its pros and cons as far as professionally. Like if you look at juggling from like when I started back from the late 70s, early 80s to like nowadays, and it seems like nowadays it's really important to have a niche. Yeah. To have some backbone to your career that you can depend on. Like some guys have that in the cruises. 
Like that's their bread and butter is they have a certain number of cruises per year. Or some people do that through like the fairs or through Renaissance fairs or state and county fairs. And very few guys, when I was coming up, basketball halftimes were definitely a thing that guys would perform at, especially like Albert Lucas or guys who were basically review show performers who had that style of performance. But then it definitely fell out of favor. And the only guy I really knew who was doing a lot of them was Dan Menendez. Right. And there were a couple other guys. I think the Gentleman Jugglers did quite a few, uh, maybe local, and I think they're from Seattle. When I saw you sort of focusing on it, and not only focusing on it, but really putting together a really appropriate act for that venue, I thought, here's a smart guy, because everybody is everybody's going after cruise ships and just swamping cruise ships. And here's this other field that pays quite well on a one-nighter basis. But I just don't think it's as accessible to most people because the style of performance is very demanding. Yeah. And that limits it to the number of people who I think, well, I'm going to put together a, a, a videotape. So you have a niche that you're able to put together this show, but it is quite demanding. It's like it's, it's only five or six minutes, but it has to be a pretty high sort of impact technical level. Yeah. Yeah, I think for halftime shows, you either need to have a... I don't, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but I'm going to use the word. I was going to use, I'll use the word gimmick. Yeah. Not to take away from Dan Menendez at oh, all. No. Um, because that's, it's all brilliant. But that is something that is very different and is very easy to watch. It's very entertaining and it sets them apart from other jugglers. Even if I had put together a very good technical routine, it, I don't think I'd be as successful as I was if I hadn't kind of gone the sports route of wearing a jersey and using basketballs and doing the basketball hoop thing. I think that's kind of my gimmick is playing up the whole athletic side of it. Well, it makes sense. I mean, you're in a basketball venue. I remember me and Barry years ago, when we were thinking about putting a basketball show together, I said, let's do something with basketballs and ramps and different little nets and mini basketballs and big basketballs. We ended up doing something called the Juggling Elvises, which is another one of my ideas, you know, kind of juggling impersonators, juggling Elvis impersonators. And we did one basketball halftime, and it was... It was uh, interesting, interesting to kind of be in that big of a venue where not everybody's paying attention to you necessarily as you're performing. Do you, right. fi- do you find that you're kind of like, you're on the big screens though, which helps. Yeah. Yeah. No, I tell people I'm entertaining those who don't have to uh, pee, eat a hot dog or check their cell phone. Right. How many sort of uh, shows do you do a season now? Is it, is it quite? It's, it's increased every year. So this, this year was... Thirty uh, something mm, nice. uh, for the for the season. And then who else do you see out there? I mean, I know there's the woman who does like the cups and saucers on the unicycle. Yeah. Well, I don't see anyone out there because you're never going to see the same person at the same thing. <laughs> a big one this year was a guy who I know who actually lives in Normal, Illinois right now, which is the weirdest thing. Is Christian and Scooby, and he he's a really amazing hand balancer who did mm-hmm. well on America's Got Talent. Oh, okay, right, right. Um, and then he has a little chihuahua. So the chihuahua like balances on his foot when he's in a full extension of a handstand and so people people love dogs and that's another act is the 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 frisbee dogs right and so i'll never be able to compete until with them until i get a dog in my act but well and sometimes people don't realize that it's not like every team uses performers that a lot of times they'll have like well we're having our local yeah oh dance group come on or we're having some kind of contest or yeah i mean it's a it's a tough market because Every team is so different as far as what, whether or not they hire professional acts, like if they have a budget. Some colleges you've never heard of will hire 
15 pro acts a season and then other schools that just have money coming out their ears as far as you know like are asking you for a $500 discount so it's it's very strange and the turnover is also really high which is really frustrating specifically mm. in colleges because a lot of times I'm dealing with like a grad assistant or something like that that's only there for one year I'll do a, I'll have a great show at a college one year and then the next year I have to like kind of start at ground zero because the person who was my contact is no longer there so that that's definitely the hardest part about it is is booking the shows. And what about the the atmosphere itself, like the lights and the air conditioning? You were saying that before that you took the rings out of your show because the, the air conditioning was too strong. Yeah, I don't do rings anymore. The air conditioning can just be kind of unpredictable. I thought about doubling up the rings to make them twice okay. as heavy, but right. I just figured it'd be easier to cut them. I didn't think they added that much to my act, and so I I just cut it. Lights are, I usually just do full house lights on. That's that's how a lot of the teams prefer to do it. Right. And that makes it easy. That's what I'm used to practice, practicing in a gym. So I love that. I have done it lights out a few times, which is very good for people to pay attention to you. All of a sudden, it immediately becomes more of a show. And so the few times I've done that, I feel like I've gotten the best response from a crowd. But it's just something that it is very hard to work into a, like a rehearsal time with a team. So I don't like I don't like doing it unless I'm able to see the lights beforehand. And so mm. if if they can't work out that time, then I say no and just keep the lights on. And I've seen you've actually done torches on the basketball. Yeah, I I, I offer that if they want it, but I don't I, I don't bring it up because it's just kind of more hassle. Yeah, and I think one of their big issues is, is sort of leaving anything on the floor. Yeah, yeah, and they they like you to be easy on and off, and you know, just the little spray of liquid or whatnot it makes it more difficult, and it's it's not worth it in my opinion. But if they ask for it, I'm happy to do it. And it seems like you're kind of experimenting now with some other alternative sporting events. Is there anything you're looking at as, as sort of seeing something with the future is out there in the that you're willing to share with us, or is everything uh, everything bad except for basketball? <laughs> I was actually really disappointed this baseball season. Last right. last baseball season, I was my first time trying to do baseball games. And so I didn't have any, I literally never done a baseball game. So I was like showing them like some basketball footage and whatnot. And like, hey, like I know I've never done this before, but you should hire me. Right. And I booked five baseball games last season. And then this baseball season, I was like, cool. I've got a baseball specific website with footage from five different teams. Like this will be like, I'll book 15 this season. Sure. And I'll, I only booked three. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know what happened at all. Like I'm very confused by that. See, I, I didn't mark it at all. And I booked one. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Well, yeah, they had like a seventh inning. Like I would get up and the, on the on deck circle, like they had three spots during the course of the game. And I forget what they called it. They called it like wood bat league or something or. Yeah. There was some, I don't even know if it was like a triple A or it was some local team, like the Mud Hens or something. And then I had one longer thing, like during the seventh inning stretch. Yeah. Where they wanted me to bring up somebody. And so a total of maybe like three or four 30 second appearances, like with one two minute appearance. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I, I was doing for mine. It was, you know, several small, very short appearances. Yeah. But it was like circus night or something bogus. Yeah. But it was fun. I remember they gave me the, uh, I got to use like their headset mic and definitely had that feeling of today I consider myself the luckiest man in the world because <laughs> I was trying to do comedy and had this sort of big booming mm. echoing kind of stadium sound to it. 
So it was kind of fun. But now you also, because I know you love basketball. It's sort of like you were, I saw on your, on your website that you were actually the president, the captain of your high school team. So basketball was something you already were quite interested in anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, that was my sport growing up. And so it was a, a natural fit. And I don't, I don't really, like, people kind of expect me to be a, a huge sports fan. Like I don't have like a, a team I, I care for or I've, I've just always enjoyed it. I, I still go to the gym and, and play pickup games and whatnot. Like I just, I've always enjoyed playing. Anybody you've seen though and said like, oh my God, there's this guy and, and oh yeah i mean i see i see players right. all the time like i got to see kobe and uh when i did the lakers games up close which was was really cool and uh, there's been a few times where like i'm warming up if i get warm-up time on the court like it'll just be me and a couple of players so it's um right it, that's really cool yeah any interactions anytime they come over to you and like hey juggler you must be you're making the big bucks how do i get into that right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they they're especially in the NBA, like they're very big on you not interacting with the players right. at all. So I think there's been some times where performers have gotten in trouble for mm. ask, asking for photos when they're in their zone of warming up or whatever. So Right. You don't go you don't go up to the black mamba while he's yeah. uh, practicing his see I'm showing my my basketball knowledge that, that Kobe Bryant's nickname is the Black Mamba. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Thank you very much. But also you you'd also do a lot of uh of these trick shot videos where you combine the juggling with the basketball trick shots. How'd that come about? Yeah, well, I'm mad I didn't start doing that a while ago <laughs> because yeah. there's several people that make a living from doing trick shots right now. Dude Perfect is the biggest one. They're, you know, they're one of the biggest YouTube accounts um, on all of YouTube. They started four-ish, four or five years ago, and they now make hundreds of thousands of dollars doing trick shot videos. Brody Smith is a guy who's a frisbee, a frisbee player, like played ultimate frisbee, and he does trick shots. And so his whole he makes a, a living throwing frisbees into basketball hoops on video. And so I, I kind of got on late to this idea, but even now it's been it's been great for my social media following, and had a few big viral videos. And but it's just something I uh, I finally went to the gym and tried one time and was really good at it. I'd actually done a one video with Bob and Trish Evans. They, uh -huh. they, they've done a lot of trick shots while juggling. And I did a video with them a long time ago, and I had fun. And I don't know why I didn't think to try it on my own later. But at that point, I, was, I think I was just so busy with my full-time job, I didn't, I didn't care about filming myself. So it was about a year ago I started doing trick shots, and it's been really cool. And a lot, a lot of fun stuff has come from it. Now, you recently were on a, a web series yeah. uh, doing trick shots. What was that called? It wasn't just trick shots, but okay. the, web, the web series was called Record Smashers. Every episode, we were either setting or breaking different world records, and there there were a few trick shots in there, but that was just a uh, just a couple of them. Now you can so you can actually make money producing videos nowadays. And you were saying uh, also before I think before we started talking on the podcast that one of your goals would be to sort of being a juggler who could actually make a living without being a traveling, performing juggler. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how close is that to a sort of a reality? It's still pretty far in the distance at the moment. Mm -hmm. My social media has just recently started to become a source of income at all, but I'm still in my first year of it, so my followers are still quite low compared to anyone making a, a serious living out of it, but I'm getting $500 here and there for sure. some posts. Sounds good to me. How many followers do you need to kind of get the money train rolling. It's kind of once you start hitting the hundreds of thousands across right. 
across every, like on each platform and where you can be creating hundreds of thousands of impressions per post. I don't think that it's impossible for me. So we'll, we'll see. It'd be it nice. Goes. It'd be a nice lifestyle, wouldn't it? Just to be able to kind of pick and choose and make videos. I think that's sort of the ultimate desire now of a lot of, right. a lot of jugglers is to, because you see a lot less sort of performing jugglers of, of the old school and a lot of guys trying to come out with the, because there's only so many guys who can be comedy jugglers on cruise ships nowadays. Right. That's a really interesting goal. When you do these these trick shots, like I know you have this recent one with uh, Stefan Curry. Right. Stefan Curry was a, a juggler. Yeah. Now, do you have to sort of use the rights? Can you sort of use his footage of these warm-ups of him? Do you need to do any kind of special things when you put a video like that together where you use other footage? If I would, that one's actually not on YouTube yet, but it did, I think it's at like 300 and something thousand yeah. views on Facebook. Yeah. But that doesn't make me any money. So I got you. If it was on YouTube, I think the NDA would automatically get any revenue from that movie, that video. I see. But I'm not making money from, some people make money from ad revenue on YouTube, but that's not where any of them, like the money, money I'm getting right now is from like brands. Right. Brands paying me to do something in line with the campaign that they're doing. And, that, and that, for most social media people, that's where the big money is coming from. Some people are, are under the impression it's from all from YouTube revenue. But it's, the, the YouTube revenue is really nothing compared to when a brand is, is sponsoring them to. Yes, these campaigns. I heard a guy on a, a podcast talking about how it's sort of a branding thing where they hired him to do like six videos yeah. using his social media. Like once he had enough followers, companies will come to you and go like, wow, you have X number of followers. If you could use our so-and-so in your next video, yep. we will give you money. Yeah. And that's part of, at my last job was part of the social media job was working with influencers. They're, they're called social media influencers. And right. you know, I was learning like, wow, this, this guy just got paid $40,000 to make a vine. <laughs> Six that's seconds. A, that, right, that, right. That's, what, that's what some people are making for a six second vine is 40 or more thousand dollars. What? If I can get, start making a very small fraction of that on a regular basis, I, I would be happy. Well, I think it's important for people to realize that juggling is a great profession, but it's nice to have sort of a transitional thing in your life where you're able to do something different. That you're able to use your experiences and knowledge and creativity that you develop as a juggler. But as you progress through your life and you want to have different lifestyles and maybe not travel so much, maybe have different opportunities, is to create different kinds of businesses yeah. that still rely on your talent. But the day of having like a one eight-minute act, like, like I say, when I was coming up, what I saw were guys like Chris Cremo, who basically had a, a one ten-minute act, and that's what a professional juggler did. Right. So you see all these different progressions. Like what we saw was, you know, through the comedy boom, through the opening act market, through the corporates. And now, like after the whole economic boom has sort of come and gone, where corporates used to sort of be the, the end-all, be-all result of what you wanted. Yeah. Because once again, it created the best lifestyle of sort of the fewest shows per month with the most payment. Yeah. So if you're getting 10 grand a show and you're doing three or four of those a month or six of them a month or whatever you're getting, that lifestyle is very attractive. Yeah. I felt like... I heard some pressure from other like professional juggler friends of you need you need to follow this cookie cutter formula if you want to be successful as a right. juggler, and I think that's kind of where where that mindset of my degree came in to play. Where I was like, N no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to do that. 
and it's always changing. And, and when, I, when I quit my job, I, I really was focused on performing. And I was like, I'm going I'm to start growing my social media because that would be cool if I could eventually do that. And that was just nine months ago. And already I've said, I've kind of thought, wow, like I really, I think that there's potential here. I've switched my focus now recently from, obviously I still need that performance income sure. uh, to survive, but I'm really trying to get out videos as frequently as I can to grow these followings because I think that there's a lot of potential there that could take my career to a totally different place and take juggling to a totally different place. I mean, that's the coolest thing for me in social media so far is I think I've created more jugglers than most jugglers have as, as a professional. Like I, I get messages online all the time, probably three times a week of kids sending me their three ball cascade saying that I inspired them to learn how to juggle, which has been really cool. Well, juggling on the internet is so interesting because it's, it's what, what catches people's attention. It's hard to create this template of, okay, I'll do this and get a lot of views. Yeah. Like that answer of what is it that makes a video? Like, certainly something like this Stefan Curry video, you can see like, okay, yeah, if I'm able to combine it with something pre-existing that's popular. Right. That was my most viewed Facebook, view, uh, Facebook video ever. And it was the easiest thing for me to film. Like n none of that stuff was hard for me. Sure. And so now I'm, I'm trying to think about how I can do more things like that, that are thinking about it smarter instead of harder, not just doing the hardest stuff possible, but. Well, I always think you have to glom on to things that are in the news or already popular. Like here's my take on the Oscars or here's my take on this Billboard Music Award or here's, here's Donald Trump as a juggler. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I I always try to align my videos in some way, even if it's just through the caption with whatever's going mm -hmm. on. I had a a video that did pretty well. It was like Kobe's last game, and it was a video of me just doing a bunch of different six six ring tricks, and the caption was just more, more rings than Kobe since Kobe <laughs> only, only won five championships, and so that one did pretty well. But just I think just because of that re relevant caption. Well, I'd be interested to see where you go with this because I really think that's another. Very smart move. I'm looking at that myself is like, okay, how do you transition then? How do you now go from being a juggler, which is, like we say is a great profession and, and I think we'd agree is one of the best ways to make money and to be a professional in this world and yeah. to make our way through this world is having a career like being a professional juggler. Yeah. And there's just a lot of different avenues once you get that many followers to, to yeah. be making money. Like I'm, I'm, sp I'm not going to say who it is yet because nothing's confirmed, but I'm, I'm in discussion with like a major brand about being a, a brand ambassador sponsored athlete basically, where they, they pay me a monthly rate and give me free product for just for the occasional post every once in a while. It's, it's the people who I admire in juggling is like I was talking to Sean Gandini and I'm saying there's the guys who sort of create nowadays their own path through juggling. Mm -hmm. Before it was so much like almost a cookie cutter of, well, this is what you did to become a professional juggler. And every once in a while, someone breaks that mold. Like they become popular in colleges, like an Edward Jackman. Then all of a sudden, everybody wants to do colleges or they become popular in cruise ships. Then everybody sort of wants to do cruise ships or fairs. But the guys who can kind of create their own path, like a Jason Garfield, Jay Gilligan, or a Sean Gandini, to me are the ones who are sort of bending juggling to their will. So I've always been really interested to see that, first of all, you're a really good juggler, a good technical strong juggler, but who's trying to use that in a commercial way and have an act that makes him money. Because I see a lot of good jugglers nowadays, but I don't see how they're going to make any kind of wherewithal in this world of a career and then having a career that they can transition out of into another cool career. 
like making videos and having a fan base. So hopefully this podcast will inspire the younger jugglers to go like, wow, I can do like Josh Horton, but not by doing what Josh Horton is doing, but by finding my own path and creating my own way to go. And that's how I'll be successful is by being creative like someone like a Josh Horton. Yeah. So I'm going to sort of sum up the <laughs> podcast by giving you a little butt kissing there at the end. And also saying I'm really interested in seeing where you're going to go in the future. I wish you the best. And I think it's going to be interesting to see where the future of juggling goes in general. For sure. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, that went pretty quick. And I think we got a lot of great information about where you're at in your life and career. And I want to thank once again, the great Josh Horton for being on Drop Everything. Thank you so much, Josh Horton. Thanks, Dan. See you later. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 31, my chat with Josh Horton. I really enjoyed it. Josh shared some great information about the basketball halftimes, transitioning into this video career of his, his real job, and, and so much more. It was great. It was fantastic. You know what would be really fantastic? If you would go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. Not for me, but for Josh. He needs it. All right, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group can be found at juggle.org. Almost convention time, or festival time as they call it now, so join me at this year's festival in El Paso, Texas, with the great guests Emil Dahl, Pete Irish, Scotty and Katrina, Kamikaze Fireflies, I can go on and on and on if my limited memory would serve me, but it doesn't. So let's move on to braindrizzles.com. That's my personal coaching and career guidance website. Go to braindrizzles.com if you want to excel as a professional performer in the variety arts. Let's thank Karen Holtzman, my engineer, and let's thank you, the loyal Drop Everything listeners. So, go out in the world, drop everything, except when you're juggling.